These coronavirus special reports are meant to reinforce the Atrium Health community and how we each give, the different ways we contribute, the challenges we face, the innovation we deliver. We are in this together and we will beat this virus together. So we have the opportunity to chat with Dr. Andy McWilliams and Dr. Phil Turk, who are both uh, leaders in our uh, organization here who are helping fight this coronavirus pandemic by helping model uh, some of the uh, anticipated dates of surges and the impact to our community. So before we get into that meat of that work that they're doing, let's uh, find out who Dr. McWilliams is. And uh, Dr. McWilliams, will you share who you are, where you're from, and how long you've been with, uh, with Atrium? Sure thing, thank you. So uh, I've been with Atrium for eight years now. Uh, I'm a med-peds doctor, so that's uh, boarded in internal medicine and pediatrics, actually from Charlotte, so came back home. Wow. Um, and have been in various various roles in our system uh, over the eight years, uh, currently working clinically with our hospitalist group in Pineville. Excellent. Excellent. No, so it's your return home. Wow. All right. Very good. I do want to ask another uh, clarifying question, though. Um, um, you are also a graduate of which fine, fine institution? The Wolfpack. There you go. Thank you, sir. <laughs> All right. So that the part. Only, the only right answer to that question. Right? That's right. That's right. Uh, so the alma maters uh, stick together here. All right. Dr. Turk, um, tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, how long you've been with us and, and sort of a little bit of background on you. Well, my background is a little bit different. I notably was a, an assistant professor of statistics at West Virginia University. Okay. And then I, and then I went to uh, Colorado State University where I was an associate professor of statistics. And uh, I came out to Atrium Health in, in December, and I was here for a, a, a few months uh, before um, things took a, before the world tilted on its axis. Oh, yeah. And, getting into the, uh, the, uh, the COVID outbreak. Yeah. Uh, but my role here at CORE is I am a director of biostatistics and data science. So and, uh, for the rest of us who are unfamiliar with CORE, will you tell us what the acronym is? Yeah, so I, I'll tell you, uh, and then maybe just briefly, who we are and what we do yeah. here at Atrium. So CORE is the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation. And we're approaching our fourth year of existence, formerly known as CORE. Uh, but going back uh, to, to when CORE really started and kicked off, we had uh, my, my colleague then, uh, Dr. Melanie Spencer, who's now a professor emeritus here, uh, joined forces uh, to really try to build out uh, under one umbrella the expertise, the diverse expertise that we needed in order to realize our great opportunity here at Atrium to take advantage of the platform that we, we have, the, um, the great opportunity that we sit on to, to really define how we deliver care, transform care. And so um, this, was, this was early in the, the advent of Atrium Health being a learning healthcare system, and mm -hmm. that's become more of our vernacular now. Uh, but the idea that uh, if we could, as a system, align our research chassis with our system strategy and quality improvement work 
that we would be really uniquely positioned nationally to define how we deliver care, the type of care that we deliver in a way that really, uh, really no one else uh, could do because of our size, our clinical expertise, and then um, uh, the, the very early investment that was made in having an integrated system and integrated EHR. And so fast forward to today, we have uh, over 35 teammates, uh, biostatisticians, data scientists, quantitative, qualitative researchers, data managers or data wranglers, um, <laughs> and, and, a, and a robust operations team. And uh, we partner with our uh, excellent faculty around the system as well as our system leaders to do exactly that vision of making Atrium Health a learning healthcare system. Yeah, that learning healthcare system, we spoke about this a, a few months ago, and I know you've been working on this for a while. I mean, this has really come into fruition because not only have you done other types of modeling work before this, um, now you get to, I mean, can you give an example of other stuff you had worked on before? before the coronavirus impact? Sure. And I think the, the, the pandemic is, a, is probably the best example of, uh, of where, you know, fortunately we, we've built these collaborations yeah. and the expertise over the, the last many years to be able to really pivot an entire organization to what other people think of as a learning healthcare system. Uh, we're able to scale that where, uh, where our, our uncertainty is great. There is no there is no blueprint, and in this case, it's pretty much everybody in the world. Right. There's no blueprint for how we navigate this pandemic, and so you really have to all get on the same team, pull together the scrum team of that expertise to dive in, do rapid science, trying to get to uh, the best directional answer we can get to, and not only do learning rapidly, but infuse learning into our care uh, and the. You know, that's not weeks or months or years, but it's taking evidence that we're generating today mm-hmm. and disseminating that to our clinicians, but also our leaders. So your question about where, where we had done this before. So really exciting, you know, this year hitting our stride where we have um, uh, dozens of studies in flight across our organization that are those quote-unquote real-world studies where our leadership, our researchers, and our quality improvement folks have picked a uh, direction that we're heading in, and we're trying to fill that in with evidence. Uh, a couple examples just of, of sort of the uh, uh, higher profile randomized controlled trials with sort of that more rigorous approach to generating the evidence, but in, in, in real time woven into clinical care would be uh, where we've aligned with our, our psychiatry department, some of the uh, faculty there, as well as the behavioral health service line leaders, to really look at whether or not we have the desired effect that we want on patient outcomes when we try to extend our behavioral health services virtually. And so some really neat uh, uh, work has been done. We have a, um, a large uh, randomized controlled trial looking at whether or not we can extend <coughs> virtual patient navigation uh, into our uh, outlying emergency departments in collaboration with telepsychiatry to say, you know, if we offer this virtual navigation to help patients who are in crisis presenting to our EDs, does it actually reduce the number of patients who get admitted and have to board in our EDs and wait for a precious commodity of the uh, behavioral health beds? And so it's, you know, it's a, 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 a trial that was set up very quickly in months, kind yeah. of recognizing the agility that we put into the process. And then because of our size, we'll be able to get to an answer to that trial in, in uh, 
under you know under a year in months rather than years as a traditional research would play out. That's that's a great example. Thank you. All right. So now to the meat of why we wanted to chat today. Um, all right. So you guys are basically going to be comparing the coronavirus pandemic and our projections of how this will impact this area to the next hurricane that will hit, that will hit uh, Charlotte, right? Because you're just basically forecasting and projecting. Where will it hit landfall? How many evacuations we need? Is that even remotely right? More than remotely right, and I'm going to let I'm going to let Phil take this from here because he has some interesting insights into hurricane forecasting. Oh, even and better. I, and, and we didn't even talk about this beforehand. Wow. All right, Phil, take it, it away. Walk us through the pandemic from hurricanes. So, uh, indeed, it turns out that there's a, a very famous hurricane forecaster out of Colorado State University. <laughs> uh, wow. It's uh, Philip Klotzbach, and he actually uh, does the hurricane forecast for um, our country. Uh-huh. And, you know, it, there's, there's really kind of a black art to trying to forecast hurricanes. Um, they're um, the, the, the models that deal with hurricane trajectories and hurricane movement and the cone of uncertainty, they're very uh, complex. And um, in, in, in a quiet moment with um, um, Dr. Krasbach, he, he would always tell me that, you know, we can try to, forecast where these things are going to be hitting landfall but you know it could be even you know 12 hours before it strikes land and we could still be wrong sure because there's just so many variables that come into play there's uh you know um you know the meteorology and and there's ocean dynamics and whatnot so in, in the same way in terms of trying to predict when the peak infection will take place Mm-hmm. It just it requires constant monitoring uh, every day as new data come in. We have to kind of veer and tack with the wind. We have to take the data. Uh, we have to fit the model all over again. Sometimes we need to recalibrate the model. Um, and it just requir- requires constant uh, nurturing and, and care. Uh, of course, statistics by itself is a science of uncertainty, mm-hmm. and you have to be able to live with that uncertainty and you have to try to quantify it to the best of your abilities. Well, it sounds like uh, it's not only a science, but really has a component of art to it. So the art and science piece. Now, uh, I'm going to ask you a little more detail about that, though. How, when you talk about needing variables and lots of variables and having to modify those variables on a, uh, a, on a regular basis, how many variables are we talking about that you're looking at? Well, the model that I use is considered a, a, a classic epidemiological model. Um, that's, that's, it's, a, it's a system of ordinary differential equations that you need to solve and then try to estimate parameters within the system of differential equations using mathematics. So shockingly, there's not too many parameters in the system huh. of the differential equations, the trick is to uh, how they're used in the expressions of the equations themselves and how they describe the behavior of our popul- our, our Charlotte, uh, our greater Charlotte, and our North Carolina population. So uh, 
just requires um, uh, it's it's not a push button automated operation. You actually have to uh, take the time to make sure that um, the model converges, that you get numbers that make sense, mm -hmm. and it does it does require um, uh, it's it's not something that is a black box sort of operation. It does require some monitoring. Understood. How often are you doing the monitoring? Uh, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, uh, we so we scrape the data from the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services every day, even at the county level. And I fit the model on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for both the state and the greater Charlotte area, so that I can inform, so that four uh, can inform the uh, the leadership with the uh, latest forecasts and, and metrics. Okay, and and so when you're when you and, and Dr. McWilliams are doing this and preparing, um, you know you are continuing to look at different variations. The model. Can you give me a little more about what the model includes from a detection rate standpoint and sort of uh, actual community prevalence? Well, that's one of the things that Andy and I have had to put our. Our, our kind of our heads together and think about some ways to extend the model. Yeah. The the model in its base form um, is, is is fairly simplistic, and so as time has gone on, Andy and I have had to think of ways to extend the model to, for example, uh, incorporate uh, trips to the hospital. Hmm. And, to actually acknowledge imperfect detection of COVID-19 positive cases. We've had to wrestle with the fact that in Mecklenburg County, there was a public health intervention, a stay-at-home order put into place mm -hmm. on 26. So we had to modify the model to incorporate that. So every as, as time goes by, you just have to be nimble and and, and be able to uh, adapt to the, the changing conditions. Well, you said a couple of things there that I want to follow up on, and, and, and Andy, please chime in whenever you want. Uh, you, you mentioned that you're, you're taking into account the impact of the stay-at-home order, which essentially leads to the social distancing component of things and how that's playing a role. And then you also said something about the greater Charlotte area versus just Charlotte proper. Can you, either of you, uh, expound on that a little bit? Yes, so I'll jump in there. So uh, I think I think what is really, really important to highlight here is the local context to, um, to how this infection acts. And so part of the reason that, uh, that uh, Dr. Turk and, and many others on our team have pivoted uh, to working mainly on this right now is that we feel that local context is pivotal. Uh, as our leaders in the system and in the uh, county and state are trying to make decisions that affect our communities. And so um, as an example of that, we started uh, at the request of our health department with Mecklenburg County in order to inform decisions that uh, the leadership there needed data and insights to inform. And what we saw um, through, uh, through Dr. Turk's modeling was that there were very in important differences between North Carolina and Mecklenburg County when we were modeling those, hmm. both in terms of the peak, the doubling time, and then also the overall prevalence of infection. 
and that really began to highlight the importance for looking uh, <laughs> at the spatial differences. And then we added in, uh, again, sort of that, that pivot of being a learning healthcare system. We needed to get our closest approximation to the Atrium Health Charlotte market. And so the next wave of modeling effort was focused on our greater Charlotte area. And the reason for that was Atrium's responsible for a much bigger population with, with even, uh, you know, probably a, a, a different um, sort of a community context than Mecklenburg County. And so we wanted to make sure we were getting as close of an approximation as we could to, to that broader market. And that's why when uh, Dr. Turk was referencing, we have the North Carolina modeling, the Mecklenburg County modeling, and then now a better approximation of our overall Charlotte market with the greater Charlotte area. Anything you want to add to that, Phil? Uh, I think you nailed it. Excellent. No, that's, that's, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I said I think Andy said it well. Oh, great, great. Um, I agree, uh, and it's really interesting because obviously you are seeing variations from the different models that were used for the North Carolina versus Mecklenburg versus the Greater Charlotte areas. Um, so, and you mentioned another set of key terms that you're looking for: uh, the peak, the doubling time, and then actual number of tests. Um, can you elaborate on why you looked at those particular variables or those particular outcomes? Well, I can, I can certainly talk about a, a, a couple of metrics that are important uh, to someone that would be monitoring the progression of the, the epidemic or the pandemic from a public health standpoint. Uh, for example, the doubling time is something that you hear about um, relatively frequently in the news. And the doubling time is important because it tells us if the progression of the pandemic is um, uh, accelerating or slowing down. So in the initial stages of the, the outbreak in the greater Charlotte area, I noticed that uh, typically the, the doubling time every time I would sit down and compute it was somewhere in, around you know, 2.8, 2.7 days. Uh, and as time has gone by and there's a greater awareness of uh, enhanced personal hygiene, social mm -hmm. distancing, mm -hmm. uh, the, the doubling time has actually been increasing. In fact, uh, um, I think today was the first day that I noticed it, it actually was up to four days. Wow. What this basically uh, informs us is that the stay-at-home order is actually having an effect and the progression of the pandemic is is slowing down. So that's definitely that, a key metric. That's that's incredible. That because uh, people actually following the recommendations and staying home and doing the social distancing is having tangible impact on on uh, the doubling time or this measure. Uh, that's that's impressive. Now, just for a reference, though, can you tell us or do you have knowledge of? What was the doubling time in places like Washington State, who obviously had no real time to respond, uh, or their you know the impact was greater, and then also and or New York City or the New York area metropolitan area where it's now we're starting to see you know significant impact. Do you have any reference points for there from a doubling time or what they were seeing? Well, I can certainly take a stab at it, and Andy, you know I'm sure you have some uh, uh, data as well. 
but the experience that we're seeing here in the greater Charlotte area appears to mirror um, other areas of the country. There's a definitely a, a, a fairly pronounced spatial structure to this pandemic across the country. And in areas that are hotspots or where the pandemic begins, you see the same sort of thing. Initially, you see uh, doubling times that typically are in the mid to upper twos. And then uh, as things start to, um, as the, uh, uh, as, as the, the disease, the, the, the coronavirus reaches its um, um, peak of its infection curve or approaches a, a peak of infection, or perhaps as the infection curve starts to flatten and be pushed ahead, you see the doubling time start to increase until uh, they're you know, approaching four, uh, four and a half days, somewhere in there. So, um, and in fact, um, it, it appears that's what's happening in New York. Uh, you're starting to see uh, 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 some indications that they're approaching the, the top of the uh, infection curve. So when we first started down this path in, in the Charlotte area, we were tracking pretty closely, uh, as, as Phil was talking about, um, on a trajectory like, like New York with a doubling time. There's been a little bit below three and is now starting to uh, get a little bit longer. Um, and so really, uh, you know, when you hear on the news that days matter, uh, I think what we're seeing here is that they, they actually really do. And so I think that's a, a statement to the bold leadership, uh, both within Atrium but also within the county and the state, to take some of those measures that were not easy decisions, um, <clears throat> but, but the right decision at that time before things started to get bad. And now, hopefully, we're seeing that it's paying dividends and uh, increasing that doubling time and, and flattening our curve. That's excellent. That was when we first started off. It was, uh, you know, flatten the curve, you know, allows us as a healthcare system to be able to respond to the, the needs uh, was really out there early. And, and we are seeing some of that. Um, can you comment, um, and, and you may not be able to, but, you know, uh, when do we expect this to be really bad? And uh, how bad will it be? Um, and, and with the modeling information you have now with the, f the flattening of the curve, you know, what's the prognosis from your perspective? Well, based on what I've seen, um, the, it, it appears that the peak prevalence for infection will be sometime in early to, um, around early to mid-May. Okay. If all things hold equal. And that's sure. the caution yep. uh, that I would, 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 would say is that this, this assumes that um, we continue to maintain good good practice vis-a-vis social distancing, increased personal hygiene. Uh, it's possible to uh, anticipate an early to mid, uh, mid-May peak in terms of an infection uh, prevalence. And, and from a standpoint of what will be the impact, you know, is this going to be, I mean, because we're flattening it, flattening that curve, our peak should not be what it was before anticipated before. Is that a fair statement? Yes, that's correct. Is if you have a, a, a public health intervention where the there's social distancing, increased personal hygiene in place, then you can anticipate a, a, a downward pressure on the top of the infection curve and a movement 
uh, to the right, in other words, further ahead in time. And that's exactly what we have seen tracking, tracking this, the, uh, particularly the, the past week. I would just, I would just add that, um, you know, the second step of this modeling is to get to where we can try to get a feel for what the impact is going to be on our healthcare system, on yeah. our hospital beds, our yeah. beds and our IC. So, um, you know, the modeling is tremendously important to predict the um, when the peak will happen, the effect of the social distancing, how many people will be infected. Uh, Dr. Dr. Joe and Dr. Roberts on our team have been collaborating closely with uh, Dr. Turk and, and on that second part of this, and that's to uh, really predict that. And th their information has been uh, extraordinarily helpful uh, in, in our leadership talking to the county as well as our other neighboring healthcare systems to really start to dial in what is that going to be and how do how how can we be best prepared for that? And so, um, you know, just to put in perspective, um, before social distancing, we were projecting, as you've seen in the in the Charlotte Observer, yeah, uh, a fairly sizable gap, uh, thousands of beds short. If we continued on a trajectory like New York City, which sure. we were on that path, and then once we've uh, but but with that, just like you would do if the hurricane eye was headed towards your uh, city, uh, our, our health system leaders in the county uh, have done an extraordinary job of preparing over the past um, couple of weeks to where uh, we, we've gotten our bed capacity and supplies much closer to where we would need to be if that catastrophic event happened. And now, better prepared than not, we're seeing the, the flattening, as Dr. Turk alluded to, and we're seeing a proportionate decrease in the capacity effect where uh, where we we think if, if we were to hold course we would actually be uh, in, a, in a much better position from a, a healthcare system capacity standpoint um, so none of the none of the preparedness will go to waste uh, right we, you know we will certainly be more more and more of these patients being hospitalized uh, and if, if for some reason those other variables change or if social distancing is relaxed too early we may still see our trend go back towards that um, that higher peak. That's an incredibly important point, right? I mean, we're we're following this particular trajectory because of the behaviors and actions that have uh, stemmed from leadership decisions, but really also the public actually responding. If we stop responding, it doesn't it changes the curve again. And so, whether you're describing or anticipating a certain bed need or a certain response by the healthcare uh, organizations. You may not be able to reach it if you if you don't continue with this practice. Okay, that, that's that's very good. So, how does your um, modeling differ from when we hear on the news this University of Washington model? Well, the people out at University of Washington use a different approach. Their emphasis is on the death rate, hmm. and they they use. Um, what is called a Bayesian nonlinear mixed model to actually look at cumulative death rate curves. So their approach is, is, is quite a bit different than what um, CORE is doing. CORE is using, again, what's called a deterministic compartment model and then extending that model moving forward to uh, account for the, the the, the nuances that I've rattled off in the in the past 15, 20 minutes here. Sure. So their approach is just is is, is different. Uh, um, they they do some great work. I think the I think their model is 
personally uh, too optimistic. I believe uh, today Andy sent me a screenshot of their prediction for this area. And Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think they predicted uh, a mid-April peak prevalence of infection. So, uh, I, I, you know, all, all models are wrong. Some are useful. And has, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> some people uh, take different approaches, and so you can't expect all models to converge on a, a singular uniform answer. But I, I'm, I'm, I, I really appreciate the work they've done. It's very uh, mathematically elegant. Yeah. No, no, no. And I think that's where it becomes challenging for the teammates who hear something with a prediction for North Carolina saying it'll be X period in time, let's say mid to late April. And then now we also think, okay, with the flattening that we're seeing, it will be pushed out further. And that leads to uh, other anxiety for teammates and, and for the community actually as a whole. Um, and, 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 you know, but again, this, uh, there is always going to be some level of uh, uncertainty. And I think, is the term called cone of uncertainty that you can maybe elaborate on? Well, this, this model is a little bit different than a traditional, um, what's called a stochastic model. With a, a deterministic model, it's based on physical principles. It's based on mathematics. So there is no um, cone, if you will. There's okay. no... Um, confidence interval or forecast interval. It's it's a different approach than using um, what are called stochastic models like individual contact models or network models. So this this is a little bit different uh, uh, of an approach than um, what you might uh, into it. Okay. All right. All right. And and you feel obviously because we're using it. Uh, it's more accurate, right? Because it's, um, I mean, for the reason we just talked about. I personally think it's doing exactly what we asked it to do. Yeah. I, giving us sensible predictions that make sense, uh, both from the standpoint of statistics and what we know of, uh, of the coronavirus. So I'm very happy with how things have been, have been progressing so far. Uh, of course, we're still early in the game, so... Uh, we have to be prepared to um, be flexible and 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 possibly uh, um, uh, you know tweak the model from time to time. But so far, it's been doing exactly what we we wanted it to do, and uh, I'm 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 quite satisfied with its performance so far. Excellent. And well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in there real quick. Yeah, please. Say that, uh, you, know, you were asking about the uncertainty that teammates feel when they see, you know, different predictions from different models, and they're they're in fact wildly different. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that really that really gets us back to the original point, which was that um, being able to have the the expertise uh, like like Dr. Turk and others on our team uh, to be able to to let Atrium lead in this space and have our own local data inform our decision making. Um, uh, allows us to feel more confident that uh, the models that we're seeing locally are are probably the most dialed into our local context because they're they're using our patients, our data, um, and and we understand because the models were built here what the assumptions are that are put in there. It's not a black box. And then with the cone of uncertainty, I cringe to say it with two mathematicians on the on the call here, but. Uh, that I, I will sometimes, uh, even though the model is not built with a cone of uncertainty, use that as a sort of way of translating the uncertainty of any model 
and uh, and we've done that to kind of help guide our leaders in that space uh, by having uh, a floor and a ceiling and then a, a moderate projection of where we might head so that we can talk about sort of the the varying outputs that might happen based on variables that right now we can't we can't predict yeah and thanks for clarifying both of those questions uh, for me with your answers Andy and I guess if, if, if we start with that analogy that we did with the hurricane forecasting you know there are so many variations that occur throughout that whole course of that hurricane as it's coming through the Caribbean and towards the US I mean we do the best we can and there are those models that show the further out you go, how accurate it is likely to hit Charlotte versus veer off and go back into the Atlantic. And I know that these models are not the same, but, but in the context of someone being able to understand the work you all are doing, you know, you are using local real-time information as real-time as we can get uh, to impact your model, which to date is continuing to show you and predict the things you would expect it to predict. Um, would that be a fair statement, Dr. Turk? Yeah, I, I would say that that would be a, a, a fair statement. Forecasting, um, extrapolation, whatever you want to call it, it's, um, you know, the further you, you get ahead from the present moment, the broader that cone of uncertainty will be. So we're trying to predict something that is, 30, 60 days in advance, and um, you just have to recognize that with that, uh, with that extrapolation, with that forecast, you're going to have a, um, a, a great deal of uncertainty associated with it. So we do the best we can with the tools we have, uh, with the expertise that's within core, and the data that we have, and just uh, live with that. Yeah. Well, you're providing a feedback loop, though, right? Your feedback loop and your time intervals are much more frequent than sort of other types of extrapolation. So you get a little more control and try to minimize that error rate. Yeah, we, we certainly do the best we can do. Yeah. Um, it's, it's important that our leadership get the, the best information that we can provide so that they can make the best decisions for our patients and the community. And we try to deliver on that every day. Excellent. All right, a couple of really, really difficult questions now then, okay? How's the morale of the team? Your team as well as the teammates that you interact with who count on you for this information? I can, I can take that first. Um, so, uh, you know, having, having been in the hospital down in Pineville, I would say it's, you know, it's always inspirational to see uh, all of your colleagues rolling up their sleeves and, and showing up to work even in times where there's tremendous uncertainty and, and you know, risk to yourself, and, uh, and that's what we're, we're in the game for. Uh, so that's uh, very inspiring. Uh, in terms of our, our, uh, our core team, you know, it's, it's difficult for everybody to stay connected, uh, working remote. We were one of the early teams to go remote, and, uh, but we're, we're doing a good job, everybody staying together. And really, you know, just to reflect real quickly as a pivot from that of, the nearly nearly our entire team, as in many other organizations, is, is all in focused on COVID. And so we've talked a good bit about the modeling, but and when we talk about a learning healthcare system, just kind of honing in on some of the other important data and analytics things that uh, that our team and others across the system are doing. So uh, just a really cool inspiration. Uh, early on when this started, we needed to have a much more focused approach to the research that could be done on COVID, and again, where Atrium could lead the way. And so. Um, under the leadership of Dr. Gibbs, 
Dr. Jenico Taylor from CORE, Dr. Uh, Mike Brennan from Oral Medicine, uh, a task force, COVID-19 research task force was formed, and we've got representatives from all over the organization. Over 50 of our research scientists uh, have banded together and are collaborating in ways that we've never done before, uh, and just really cool to see that agility and what they're working on. Um, an example of that, Dr. Prim from CORE and Lewis McGurdy from ID uh, early on have gotten a um, IRB-approved cohort study in place so that we can track our persons under investigation, our COVID positives, get real-time insights. Um, Pooja Palmer from our team and Alan Bond have worked really hard to pull together uh, uh, what you might be familiar with, like a BI dashboard tool for yep. the research community. Uh, in near real-time, we can look at outcomes demographics, characteristics, all of those things that will, will really drive how we care for these patients and how we understand this disease moving forward. And I'm, I'm sorry, more than you were looking for. No, 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 no. It, it, but, it, but it takes a team. Yeah, but, but, you, you, but it takes a team and, and people are really jumping in in so many different ways to try to make the most out of this experience that we are having to live with anyway and uh, so that we can learn from it and, and be better next time. Yeah. Absolutely. And people people understanding that they have talent, but it may not fit in their swim lane. So uh, jumping out of that swim lane and helping out. Example, you know, Dr. Uh, Mark Kolkowski and our team leveraging some of his experience from his R01 and modeling to help our materials uh, and resource team to, to model PPEs. Uh-huh. Uh, um, you know, uh, Docs across the board, nurses who don't necessarily always work in one swim lane, being agreeable to signing up to, to pivot and work in another place. It's very, very inspirational. Well, and, and that example just goes to the other conversations I've had with teammates who are going outside of their specified training roles to go help do a job because it's what we need you to do and which you can still help us out. And this is another example in another arena that we're doing that. That's awesome. I'll leave you with one final question. Both of you, please feel free to chime in. Um, what advice would you give our teammates at this point in time? Phil, so you want to take a first stab at that one? I would say don't let your foot off the gas. I would say that we have to stay the course. And, um, we have to just make sure that we don't become complacent. Uh, uh, we have to you know, keep keep practicing social distancing and, and enhanced personal hygiene and uh, above all stay positive. Uh, I know it's hard uh, when you're watching the nightly news and you're ODing on this stuff and <laughs> seeing you know terrible images on TV but it's really important to uh, uh, you know stay positive and and, 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 and remember that uh, you know we're here to serve the patients and, and here to serve the community and they need us at our at our best. I think uh, I think Phil covered that all very elegantly. He the did. The other thing I would say is just uh, you know continue to be very proud of the work that uh, that is happening across our system. Uh, you know every Monday you get the atrium atrium health proud, but uh, you know being able to kind of be a fly on the wall and see what everybody's doing uh, from a preparedness standpoint and pitching in and helping out is uh, is really really a neat thing and uh, something I think we can all be proud of. Well, I am incredibly proud to be a part of your teams, gentlemen. Uh, I really appreciate your time and all the work you're doing to 
get us better prepared to fight this uh, pandemic. Um, thank you for taking this time to share uh, the work you're doing and the things that we have to look forward to and the advice you gave. And uh, I also leave it with, please be safe. And again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. These discussions reveal our passion, our commitment, and our culture. Stay safe, stay strong, and stay Atrium Health Proud.